Hey everyone, this is Laz Jackson of Detroit Bad Boys, and on this week's podcast, we have the Brooklyn Nets team preview up next in our series. I talked to Nicholas Letourneau of Nets Daily about D'Angelo Russell's passing ability, Spencer Dinwiddie's progress since he left Detroit, and Nick's sweet-ass Bad Boys era snapback. As always, we appreciate your continued support of the podcast. The best way to do that is to share, like, and leave comments. Uh, Please leave comments on the post on Detroit Bad Boys. It's the best way for us to build the podcast according to what the fans want. In order to do that, though, you have to follow DetroitBadBoys.com, which you should be doing, because it's the best place on the internet for Pistons news and analysis this season. With all that said, it's time to go to work. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. I am your host, Lazarus Jackson. I'm pleased today to be joined by uh, Nick Letourneau, the managing editor of Nets Republic. He also writes for Nets Daily, and he also writes for uh, WNBA Insider about my Las Vegas Aces. Uh, What's up, Nick? Doing great, man. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, The reason we brought you on, obviously, is to talk about the Nets, not the Aces, despite the fact that we're both hyped about them getting the number one overall pick for the third year in a row. You know, I'm a big Aces guy. What can I say? (laughs) So we're going to start with the question we ask uh, everyone on these team preview podcasts, which is give us the uh, one word that sums up Brooklyn fans' uh, feelings after this offseason and why. I go hopeful. There, there's like, there's always going to be a certain sect of fans that are always like, "Oh, this is garbage." I, I wanted this guy. We didn't get that guy. So this whole year, it's just, it's going to be a wash. But uh, for the most part, every, everyone's pretty hopeful. There's definitely a plan in Brooklyn. Things are moving in the right direction, and the signings and draft people we drafted this off season definitely addressed a lot of areas of concern, like rebounding and defense, and just overall depth that they, they haven't had since King Atkinson has really taken over as head coach. So the Nets signed Ed Davis, Travion Graham, and Shabazz Napier for pretty uh, pretty below-market deals, I think I would say. Uh, they brought back Joe Harris, and they traded for Jared Dudley, Daryl Arthur, and Kenneth Fareed in like separate deals. They What kind of letter grade would you give them for their offseason? I'd, I'd give it like a solid B, B+. Plus. I mean, one thing that I was really, really happy about is that through these trades, they were able to clear a lot of money off the books. So they have possible two possible max contracts for uh, 2019. There's going to be a big year. There's Kawhi as a free agent. There's Kevin Durant. There's Kyrie Irving. There's a lot of big names and uh, Bleacher Report and all tons of other outlets have kind of hinted at Brooklyn being a possible free agent destination next year. So that it it was good that they not only created depth, like I mentioned earlier, but also did so, like you mentioned, at an undermarket deal, uh, kind of one-year, one-plus deal, year deals where it's a team option. So if it doesn't work out or they don't want that money on the books, it's not going to affect them for next year. So I, I think it's been a, a really good offseason. So the over-under opened at 32.5. I don't know if it's still there. Uh, where would you come down on that over-under? I'd say a little over. I know I I tend to wax optimistic about my teams, and uh, I'm I'm How really many optimistic. Games did they win last year. 
they won oh man i forgot I, we lost like 52 i know that i know the loss is more than the wins <laughs> but uh i i know we're, it, we're definitely gonna be moving in the right direction there was uh i don't know if you remember that 538 article that came out about all the bad calls towards the end of games in brooklyn they could have ended up with I mean, anywhere from like 10 to 12 more wins if some of those calls went our way. I know former uh, forward piston Spencer Dinwiddie has been very, very vocal about that too. I remember that now that you bring it up, but that was not like part of my like pre-show prep, sadly. No, that's fine. Uh, I mean, it's totally something that all Nets fans and Nets people kind of like yell at each other like, oh, we could have we had 10 more wins. This is, you know, we got to, this year's going to be good. But it, last year was, wasn't bad. A lot of that was because, like, they weren't getting calls at the end of games, right? Like, that's what Denwini was mad about. Yeah, it was a combination of not getting calls, and then there were some questionable calls made against them. So okay. uh, someone would get fouled that wasn't really that shouldn't really have been a foul, or I mean, someone would just absolutely mug Dinwiddie, and it'd be a no call, and then the game would end. All right. So when I look at the Nets, I see uh, a really intriguing roster that has two. Uh, positional pileups. There's a pileup at point guard where you've got uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, uh, D'Angelo Russell, and Shabazz Napier. And you even got like Karis LeVert being used a little bit as a primary ball handler, not necessarily like a quote-unquote point guard, but like the, a guy who initiates the offense. And you have another pileup on the wing where you've got Travion Graham, Alan Crabb, Damari Carroll, Joe Harris, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, uh, Jared Dudley, the kid you just drafted, uh, Dinzon Musa. Jana. Jana. Yeah. Jana Musa, the other kid you just graft, drafted, who I don't think is coming over this year. But uh, like those are the two things I see when I look at the roster. When uh, when the team like actually plays, how does Kenny Atkinson kind of juggle everything with, uh, with regards to those pileups? I know pileups and his kind of how, how he does his rotations have kind of been a bit of a sore subject amongst some fans. He, uh, he has a certain starting group, and I think it's going to be the same starting group that ended the year last year. So that was uh, D'Angelo Russell at point guard, Alan Grabbit shooting guard, uh, Damari Carroll at small forward, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson at power forward, and then Jared Allen at center. And I think that's kind of going to be his primary starting group going forward. And then he really has an interesting way of kind of weaving different players in and out and it's honestly all about the hot hand. There were times when uh, Spencer Dinwiddie would come off the bench and he would be just lights out, super reliable as a passer, hit some shots when he needed to, and it'd get down to crunch time and it'd be Spencer Dinwiddie getting to end the game at point guard instead of D'Angelo Russell. And Russell would have a bad game, so he'd be on the bench. So I think a lot of it is going to be based on who has the hot hand and who kind of earns more of a role. No one is going to be getting playing time because they're paid X amount of dollars. No one's going to be getting certain paying or playing time because they were drafted this spot or that spot. Uh, it's going to be who is ma- who we're matching up against that night and who gives the team the best chance to win. So speaking of guys that are intriguing because they were uh, drafted at X spot, uh, let's talk about D'Angelo Russell. Uh, I thought he made strides this past season, but uh, he's definitely still... Uh, a little bit more oft injured than you'd like from your starting point guard. And he's definitely still a little bit more turnover prone, I think, than you'd like from your starting point guard. Um, How will he have to play in uh, 2018 to kind of make a leap 
that people are expecting out of him. Well, the biggest thing about D'Angelo Russell, and especially his turnovers, is he is someone that is he's a very, very gifted passer. I don't know if you've seen some of the passing highlights, but I mean, the way he can facilitate an offense and the way he can just get the ball where it needs to be, it's really it's it's really beautiful. And I could say that unbiasedly as not just a Nets guy, but just it, it, it really is very pretty to watch. But when you get someone that could pass like that and is so young and likes to take chances is you kind of have to, it's a double-edged sword at times. You have to live with turnovers. So I think for him, it's going to be learning how to make those passes that he likes and be as creative as he likes, but know when to pull that out. You know, you can't hot dog a pass every single time down the floor. And as far as the injury stuff goes, I know uh, he's really been working hard. I'm, I, I'm not someone that usually buys into like, oh, look at this uh, workout video or oh, someone's posted all their workouts on Instagram. But he really has been posting all of his workouts to Instagram. And I got to say, he's looking like he's in the best shape of his life. I think that's kind of been part of his issue. I know when he was out in Los Angeles, he I, I don't think he was too focused on winning. He got there and it was like Kobe's swan song. And then it became uh, kind of like life after Kobe and trying to do too much. And I don't think he was really prepared for that. I think he's gotten to Brooklyn and really figured out how to be a professional. And he's learned from guys like Jeremy Lin and like Spencer Dinwiddie and Kenny Atkinson, who is a point guard overseas. Uh, he, I think he's really, for the first time in his career, really prepared for the season. He's in the best shape of his life. And he's really, he's really motivated. I mean, this is a contract year for him. So if he wants to... There we go. Those are the magic words. Contract year. If he wants to be paid like someone that was a former, you know, super high lottery pick, I think he was picked second or third overall, uh, you have to perform on the court. So I think that this is going to be a big year for him. I, I totally agree with you. I've always been uh, intrigued by his game. I think the thing that uh, I... I'm curious to see if he improves upon after an off season of work is finishing a little bit better around the rim. And he's a guy who mm-hmm. relies a lot on like pull-ups and floaters and he's, and he's left-handed and he's got like a weird uh, kind of stop and start dribble. And so like that enables him to get guys off balance and, and pull up for those floaters. But I think if he kind of did a better job of attacking bigs, getting into their bodies, drawing fouls, like getting to the free throw line, I think uh, he could be more productive, and I think that'd be like a a better place for the for the Nets' offense to be. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense, and I totally agree. There were definitely times last year where he really just wanted to shoot. I mean, he got into this offense, and it is definitely an offense where you have the green light from three point range. It's the Nets have been a team that has shot the most uh, spot up shots in the league by a wide margin since Kenny Atkinson got into the league. They've been right up there with Houston as far as three-point shot attempts. Now, the makes haven't really been what they should be. They're always you know, top one, top two in attempts, but bottom five of three-point percentage. And, you know, it's kind of lived by the three, die by the three. And there were times when D'Angelo really wanted to be a three-point shooter, and he just kind of went into a game and was like, I'm going to take six shots from three. I'm going to take seven shots from three. And sometimes you end up with uh, like that first quarter against Toronto where you hit seven threes in a row. And it was like a big, I mean, it was a huge deal. And then you got, went cold the rest of the game because of Fred Van, Van Fleet. 
but uh, I, I totally agree with you. If he can kind of initiate contact, he's such a he's he's a really slippery player. I mean, you work with him in the pick and roll, and you have a guy like Jared Allen setting the screens, and it's really a dynamic one-two punch. So I'd love to see them work with that more. So speaking of Jared Allen, Jared Allen, uh, there was a really nice piece on Nets Daily by Noah Tor about what Allen needed to improve on uh, next season. There's a lot of talent there, but can you kind of summarize what uh, what Noah's thought process was about what uh, Jared Allen needs to do to improve? Yeah, uh, Jared Allen, there he needs to work on taking more three-pointers, which is something he's taking. He said the other day in an interview with uh, someone from Nets Daily at an awesome charity event he was doing. But he said that he was taking between 50 and 100 threes uh, every single day this offseason, which is huge. And uh, another thing that Jared Allen reads, really needs to do is get – he needs to get mean. I know Francis Adu wrote something about Jared Allen as well over at Nets Republic where he said – he talked about Jared Allen really needs to get rugged. I mean, he needs to develop a little bit of that bully gene because there were just so many times last year where he was just getting pushed around. He was just getting absolutely like manhandled by all the big centers in the league. And also guys he just he should have been dominating, like Marcin Gortat and people like that. So he needs to develop a little bit more confidence, work on the three-point game. And I'm someone that you don't have to – not every player has to be a three-point shooter, but it would be really nice if he could stretch that his game out to the three-point line for a little bit. And he's just get more rugged. I mean, he needs to beef up a little bit. He's built pretty. He has a very slight frame right now, but uh, adds some good NBA weight to himself and really just kind of get mean. He's such a nice guy. I mean, he's walking around. He has that huge fro. He's always got a big smile on his face. He's nice to everyone. But uh, I'd love to see him kind of flip the switch a little bit on the court. So, what's the what's the long term like power forward fit next to Her- next to Allen uh, ideally? Is that guy in the roster, or is that something that you're looking at in like 2019? That's that's definitely something that we could be addressing in 2019. Everyone has kind of wanted Rondé Hollis Jefferson to develop into like a Draymond Green light version. And he's he's kind of getting there. I mean, he's someone that he pushes the pace. Uh, the past two years in the league, he's led individual pace stats. Like right, he's right up there with Steph Curry and other huge guys that push the pace. Uh, he's very, he's very, very important to what uh, Brooklyn does as far as a defensive and rebounding aspect. There was a stretch of games in like January or February where D'Angelo got back into the lineup after being injured, and then right away Rondé went down with some sort of injury. And in those ten games, I mean, you really saw just how crucial he was to defense and rebounding because they were just getting, they were, everyone was just shooting him out of the gym. Everyone was rebounding over everyone. I mean, Jared Allen, again, like he's not a very assertive player yet. So, I mean, people were just walking through him like tissue paper for rebounds. Uh, I know Rodion's Kurex, the, the guy we drafted in the second round, he is coming over this year. He signed a four-year deal, and we, they negotiated a buyout with his uh, European club. So he's either going to be playing in Long Island in the G League or trying to earn a role off the bench. I know, and he's someone that he's long, he's lanky, he's very skilled, he could shoot the three. And that's someone that I really would like to see paired next to Jared Allen, a stretch four type, uh, someone that can really stretch the floor, work on uh, help with the floor spacing so Allen can just be in the middle 
and benefit from all of the uh, all the shots, all the shot attempts, getting rebounds, and trying to uh, work as a cutter. So it, it's a little bit maybe Rondé, if he can develop a three point shot or at least a more reliable jump shot, he can be the guy that's next to Jarrett. Uh, corrects maybe you never know i mean a couple years down the road he could develop into that guy but uh if brooklyn doesn't feel like they have that guy in the roster already that's definitely to be something that's addressed when they have real tangible money in 2019 is ronde hollis jefferson it's his contract year also i believe like it's also his rfa year uh are they looking to like retain him are they looking to kind of move on from him simply because he doesn't he's a man without a position in the nba in 2018 as far as I know, he's someone that's very much a part of the plan. He's kind of a, a man without a position by design in Kenny Atkinson's offense. I know Rondé's first year was the year before Kenny got onto the team. He was a uh, a defensive specialist. He was a small forward, and that's that was kind of his bag. But Kenny Atkinson got there and said, "You know, I I would love to see you play power forward." And it's it's been an experiment that's. It was, it was going well when Brooke Lopez was there because, again, there was someone next to him that could stretch the floor, and it kind of worked out with floor spacing better. But uh, with Jared Allen and someone that's both a rookie learning his way in the league and someone that's not a reliable three-point shooter or very aggressive, you kind of need someone next to him that can stretch the floor. So, I don't know. Rondé's, Rondé's someone, he's had a lot of tangible growth in his jump shot from year to year. I know last year he was really odd. He has an awesome turnaround jump shot uh, from inside the three-point line. He's really looked like he's improved. Uh, his big thing is consistency. He doesn't have too much consistency on his uh, form. He really doesn't have too much consistency from shot to shot. So if he can really hammer that down, and again, it's a contract year, so he's got to either prove why he's worth something to the Nets or prove what he can offer to other teams. I want to I want to talk next about Karis LeVert. Karis LeVert is of course a Michigan guy, so we have a very uh, we have a large section of the fan base that's kind of interested in him and his doings. Uh, Karis was also on the board at 18 when the Pistons selected Henry Ellenson, and some people, myself included, kind of look in retrospect and been like, oh, like he obviously, very obviously, like should have been the pick. He was like way too skilled, and we're not very happy with Henry Ellenson right now, but. Uh, he, like I said earlier, he initiates the offense a little bit for Brooklyn, but uh, I've seen him play uh, up to the small forward position. And uh, when we were talking earlier on Twitter, there was talk of him like sliding all the way up to four. And and so I'm just like, what what is a what is what do the Nets have planned for Karis LeVert uh, in the coming years? Last year, Sean Marks went to Kenny Atkinson. This is actually like an anecdote. He went to Kenny Atkinson and said, you know, I really think that we should be playing Levert at the one. And Kenny Atkinson looked at him and said, you know, uh, I mean, we could try it, but I don't think it's going to work. And they tried it, and it did kind of work. So Kenny Kenny had to eat his words. Uh, Levert is someone, he's just so versatile. He's someone that he's positionless, but in a, in a good way, in that he can easily slide from one to three uh, pretty effortlessly. He's going to, he's really good. Well, I wouldn't say he's really good on defense. He's he's good on defense. Uh, I don't think Brooklyn's system is catered towards defense, honestly. But he's someone that's long. He plays with a lot of energy. He plays passing lanes. And he's someone that has a, a, a big enough 
body where he's not going to get pushed around too much by a lot of players. You have to be a really, uh, you know, big guy to push him around and kind of manhandle him. It's not, he's not someone that's going to be boxed out easy. He's not someone that's going to be denied the lane easily when he's driving. Uh, for him, he really needs to work on his three-point shooting and kind of just overall consistency, kind of like Rondé. He gets on the court, and there are some games where he looks like he should have been a lottery pick in the draft. He looks like someone that it, it's going to make GMs go, oh, man, why'd we, why didn't we draft him? But then there are times where he gets on the court and he plays you know, 30 minutes, and he might have eight points and two rebounds and three assists. So he's someone that he can kind of disappear in games, and much like Jared Allen. He's a, he's a really nice guy, and he needs to kind of turn on that that bully factor a little bit. I mean, there's there's so many nice guys on this team that uh, they're, they're almost too nice for the court. Like, they need to really get that competitive edge about them. Where's Levert at, at his best, I guess? Is he at his best as a ball handler? Is he Does he look uh, at his best as, like, a two-guard next to a bigger guy like like a Dinwiddie? Or is he is he better kind of on the wing where he's – um, like initiating offense with guys like shooting around him from the point guard position, like a Russell or even like a Shabazz, like whoa, where does he uh, succeed? I guess. I th- I think he's had the most success as a, uh, as a shooting guard. I mean, with Brooklyn has always had some, some decent point. Well, not always. They had been bitten by the injury bug, but there's always been guys that have been, the initiators of the offense. Dinwiddie had one of the best uh, turnover ratio, assist turnover ratios in the entire NBA last year. He finished third most improved voting and won the skills competition. I mean, he is a, he's a great point guard. And Levert, while he's an excellent passer, that's more of a feature to his game than the feature of his game. And he's really great. He's really athletic. He does show... Uh, good promise from shooting from three. And he is he is a good defender, and he can defend from one to three pretty easily, and that's very uh, valuable in a, def- a defensive scheme that focus on, focuses on switches. So if I had to choose one position, though, I'd say shooting guard because, uh, again, much like the point guard position's kind of been set, the wing position's kind of been set. If you put uh, Levert at the two, you can put Crab at the three and still get all the benefits of that. You put Carroll at three, who is, in my opinion, the, the most consistent player on the roster. And that's just so valuable to a team filled with young guys. There's there's definitely options. Uh, you could even put Rondé at the three if uh, Levert's at the two. So again, there's, there's so many versatile options. And having someone like him that you can plug into almost any position really does help. But I, I'd put him at the two more often than not. How much more well received would uh, the like collective NBA Twitter Twitterati be uh, towards Alan Crabb if he weren't making eighteen point five million dollars a year? I think they'd love him. I just there's such a a weird brand right now of everyone caring about how much someone is making. Like it's you're not spending the team. It's not your money that the team's spending. And it's it's set in stone. It's not like if Alan Crabb wasn't on the books, they could have got went out and signed someone huge this season. So I mean, just 
just live with it. Uh, if Alan Crabb wasn't on the books, it's not going to help too, too much in 2019. There's already two max contract slots. You already have D'Angelo Russell's bird rights. So I think it's just people that really, that really just like to complain what, how much money people have. And I mean, has he been worth the $18 million? No, not really. But he's worth it to get it. Alan Crabb on this team. I mean, I, I did a video breakdown last week about how important Alan Crabb is to this team. And in Kenny Atkinson's first year, they took, again, the, the most spot-up shots by a wide margin, but they were 27th in the league in completing them, which is just abysmal. And I mean, again, that's like shooting yourself out of games if you're taking the most and you're converting them at a league low, late, league low rate. Uh, you get Alan Crabb on the roster and you skyrocket from 27 to 3. I mean, not much has changed. I mean, Joe Harris was still was on the roster in that year where they were 27th. They had other options. Uh, Alan Crabb was really the deciding factor because he spaced the floor and allowed Joe Harris to be Joe Harris. He allowed uh, Damari Carroll to come in and be Damari Carroll. He just makes everything so much easier by being there. And it wasn't an accident that he's being paid that $18 million. It's, he's being paid that because when he was up as a restricted free agent in Portland, Brooklyn signed him to that offer. So it was either uh, Portland eats all that money and that's that, or he comes to Brooklyn. I mean, the Nets aren't like, oh boy, we have this super expensive player. We took him in a salary dump. I mean, this is the guy they wanted. The next year they traded for him. I mean, he, he means this much to this team. Sean Marks knew what he was doing when he paid him this amount of money because he knew that's how we get this guy on the roster. This is going to be the fulcrum to the offense. So I really think he is worth it, in my opinion. No, I totally agree. Crab uh, has been a guy I've had my eye on since his time in Portland. Just the the ability to hit spot-up shots at like a 96th, 95th, uh, percentile in the league is so so huge for any offense really and he's a long guy he can defend multiple positions um those those type of role and he knows exactly like what kind of role player he is having that type of guy like on your team just uh papers over so many other cracks in what otherwise otherwise might be like a, a really worse offense or defense and so i think you're right and you're definitely right to point out that it's not like paying Crab 18.5 mil is preventing Brooklyn from from using that money in other areas because no one, to be fair, like no one else is is coming to Brooklyn in a, as a free agent. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's not like uh, again, he pointed out the 96th percentile where he ranks. Who even above below him would they get besides Alan Crab? I mean, it's either superstars or people that do this on a, at a much smaller volume, mm-hmm. a much smaller rate. So again, like he, if you circled all the players in the NBA that do this, Alan Crabb would be that guy, no matter what, no matter what list you're looking at, no matter which guy you're trying to get, he is the realistic option that the non-superstar option to get for your offense. I'm glad we had that conversation about Alan Crabb. I really feel like Alan Crabb's underrated and we like, we should, we should talk <laughs> about it more, but another Another guy that uh, I have to bring up because we are Pistons fans, I got to talk about Spencer Dinwiddie. There's a small but vocal contingent of Pistons fans who think that uh, Van Gundy kind of giving up on Spencer Dinwiddie early was like the canary in the coal mine as far as his his talent evaluation goes. And like once that happened, we should have known 
that uh, he shouldn't have been in charge of the of personnel. But uh, I really just think Spencer needed an opportunity, and he's he's found it in Brooklyn. Um, he's like like you said earlier, he's become one of the like best uh, backup point guards in the league. He finished third in most improved voting. Um, he's also on like a million and a half dollar deal, and it's expiring this year. Uh, is he part of Brooklyn's long term plans? See, that's so tough. I I wish I could say that he was, but I really. I don't think he's going to be. There are so many guys, like we talked about earlier, uh, Rondé's coming up on a deal. Levert's deal is expiring soon. I think he, his is 2020. Uh, D'Angelo Russell's coming up. So there's really going to have to be a deciding factor made. And I think that Dinwiddie right now holds the most value as a trade chip. I mean, I've, I've loved him for forever. I remember back when I was covering the D-League, uh, he, when he, he was in Chicago or there was Chicago's D league team. I wrote about it, you know, Spencer didn't need that NBA shot. And you're right. All he really did was need a good shot. And then last year when Jeremy Millen went out with the injury, it really cleared the way for Dinwoody to come in and show exactly what he can offer people. And he's a great point guard. Uh, in some, some teams, he might be a starting caliber guy. I really like him as six man off the bench. That for that first guy that comes in and really uh, changes the pace, can keep up, really run guys ragged. But uh, I I don't think he's going to be in the future because there's going to have to be some some money options. There's going to have to be someone's going to have to come in and say, well, we can't pay Spencer Dinwiddie what he's really worth. I think he's going to command much more on the open market than what Brooklyn can offer him. So instead of seeing him walk away for nothing, I think they're going to flip him towards the deadline for at maximum value. You know, there are teams like Phoenix that are talking about, well, we want to get a really good point guard. We went after Terry Rozier. We went after, uh, I mean, a, a bunch of other like really high level players that there's no chances that we're going to get anyways. Uh, Maybe a few weeks into the season, they see Spencer Dinwiddie playing great, and they call up and offer Milwaukee's first-round pick or something like that. But I, I think it's really going to be about someone making a call to Sean and saying, hey, what, uh, what do you think of this pick? Or what do you think of this package for Dinwiddie? And I think they're going to take it because they'd rather flip him at maximum value than see him walk away for nothing. Because I really I don't think that he's going to be in Brooklyn much longer because he's going to be commanding so much more money than they could pay him. I mean, he is on such an excellent deal right now because it was, it's still his, uh, his G league deal, the D the deal he signed when he joined from the, uh, whatever Chicago's G league affiliate is. And once that money's kind of out, I, I, I just don't see how Brooklyn can pay him and pay D'Lo and pay Rondé and pay, to max slot free agents and keep paying other people. In addition to that, they really tried to shoehorn the Dinwiddie D'Lo backcourt last year as the starting backcourt, and it just it did not work whatsoever. I mean, Dinwiddie does so much great, but he is not a very good defender, and you can't put a bad defender next to D'Angelo Russell, who's not abysmal, but he's not great. And you can't put that next to Alan Crabb, who, again, he isn't terrible, but he's not a lockdown guy. I mean, if you put Dinwiddie in that 
rotation, you bump out someone like Damari Carroll, who is a, a good defender and kind of the glue to a lineup. And then you have the only really good defender on the floor is Rondé. So I don't think that they're going to want to pay him as much as he's worth to be the sixth man. So we've talked a lot about uh, the contract, the various contract situations in Brooklyn. Um, there's obviously an eye on having two max slots for the 2019 free agency when a lot of guys will be up. Um, if Brooklyn isn't able to acquire uh, two max guys or even uh, even one max guy, I guess, what what's plan C uh, out of uh, Sean Marks and, and the rest of the front office there? That's That's honestly really tough because of any NBA front office, they are they keep their cards close to the chest. They don't tell you what they're doing, and everyone's in play. I mean, they are magicians, and I say that not just as like oh they're going to pull off something big, but I mean you never really know exactly what they're working on. I mean, they flipped Timothy Moskov, who was at the time the hardest contract to move for you know. Dwight Howard, and then bought Dwight Howard out, and it just started a domino effect of all these things. So if they swing and miss on even one max free agent, if, if they come away empty-handed from like that top, that A tier of players, I think we're really going to see him get that next tier down. I, I think uh, like Tobias Harris is in that free agent class. There's, there's, I mean, there's a lot of good names that aren't like all-stars that can really make a big difference for the team. And Brooklyn is a team that when they're not injured and their people are familiar with the system, they've had a lot of success. I mean, that first year of Kenny Atkinson's reign, uh, Jeremy Lin went down with the injury. And then when he came back, they played like a playoff team. If they played at that same rate and won as many games as they did to end the season throughout the season, they would have been the seven or eight seed you kind of look at the same thing with the team last year. If they don't get into so many bad call situations, if players don't get injured, uh, they could, again, been very much in the conversation for at least the eighth seed. Uh, this year, I'm kind of waxing positive. I think that they might be in, in the conversation for the eighth seed. Will they make the playoffs? Probably not. But uh, I, I think they're going to be closer to the playoffs than they are to a top five pick which you know a lot of people are going both ways on that what is your what is your expectation level uh for this team i guess what's what's the best we'll start with the best case scenario would the best case scenario for the nets be a a playoff spot for a lot of these guys to uh display value and be like hey we 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 scrapped it out we made the playoffs we're with all these young guys to to pitch to max free agents like hey if you come build with us like in the East, in the in the easier, quote unquote, easier conference, like we have an opportunity to do something really big here. Is that the best case scenario for Brooklyn? From a free agent standpoint, yeah. But the best case scenario for the team itself, for me, is no one, no one gets injured. I mean, if we can get a full season where D'Lo and Lavert and Rondé and everyone just stays, and Alan Crabb, he got injured in preseason last year and was a little slow to start the season off we can just get a season under our belt where everyone is healthy and there is growth. D'Angelo Russell turns or uh, cuts down on turnovers. Alan Crabb goes from shooting 38% from deep to shooting 42%. Joe Harris kind of 
gets into that Kyle Korver, JJ Redick echelon of shooting. Rondé develops a little bit better of a jump shot. Jared Allen looks like he's going to be one of the better starting centers in the East. Uh, for me, it's going to be all about growth. And if that leads to playoffs, then that'd be great. But it's not necessarily a playoffs or die situation. It's not like playoffs or bust. It's going to be who grows and who proves himself, in my opinion. that That's going to be a successful season. Okay. In that case, would the quote-unquote worst case, barring like major injuries, just be uh, uh, like the development for most of the guys in the roster stalling out? Would that be kind of uh, a guy like Spencer Dinwiddie, who you may not have as like a long-term asset? Kind of he really peaks in value, and so you're 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 able to trade him at uh, at a peak, but at the same time, like the return is maybe some draft picks or something that can't be actualized like during the year or whatever. So, uh, what what's the worst case scenario in your mind? Worst case is honestly injuries, because let's say that everything goes to hell and the wins don't come and no one shows too much growth. I mean, that, that'd be bad. But at the same time, this is the first time in, I mean, geez. Oh, that's right. So many years that they've, Brooklyn has had their own draft pick. So we're, if the worst case scenario is losing, I mean, they're going to lose themselves into the lottery and get a guy that uh, is great. And I mean, you look at these past drafts with Kenny Atkinson and Sean Marks at the helm, and they've drafted really great. I mean, they've picked up great players and got great value. And so I think giving them a top five pick, I mean, that's just going to be insane. I mean, that's going to be great because it's going to be someone that fits perfectly and is going to, I mean, I think they're going to be a great player. So worst case isn't really losing. It's injuries, guys regressing, stuff like that. So that, that's why I say like best case, best case is growth. Worst case is injuries and the wins. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to be so crass and say the wins don't really matter, but in a sense, they don't because if they win and kind of sneak into the playoffs or get into like that nine fight for the eighth seed range, uh, that's great for free agency. If the wins don't come and they are in the bottom of the East, they have their own draft pick and they have another first round pick. I forget who's, but they they have two first round picks in this upcoming draft. In your mind, what's the biggest on-court problem for the Nets? Biggest on-court problem has been rebounding and defense. There's not really been a lot of... Yeah, the, yeah they don't really have the personnel no, to do a lot of that. No, they don't. I mean, last the first year it was kind of working with what they could get. Uh, last year, was you kind of saw a little bit more of the plan. They were able to develop some shooters. They were able to find some guys to fit the system better from an offensive standpoint, but they kind of had to let the rebounding and defense go to the wayside. This offseason, they got Ed Davis, who's arguably the best backup center and one of the best offensive rebounders in basketball. You got Kenneth Reed, who plays with a ton of energy and, again, is just a ferocious offensive rebounder. I mean, it's not like he was sitting on the Denver bench because he was terrible. He was sitting on the Denver bench because he didn't fit next to uh, Jokic very well and they wanted to play they wanted to try their hand at the young players because they knew he wasn't going to be around much longer so they they really do have personnel that has addressed weaknesses from last year will it translate to more wins i don't know but i think it's going to translate to 
be like being able to stay in games. There were so many times. I mean, it was kind of like the Nets fan experience the past two years where uh, they've played great at half by halftime. The score would be super close. Sometimes Brooklyn would even be winning. And then they'd just fall apart in the second half. They'd get out-rebounded. Uh, they'd stop making shots. And a lot of that was a lack of personnel and young guys. I mean, the young guys don't know how to close out games that well. They've gone out and they've signed all really solid vets outside of Travion Graham. These guys have all been players that have either won at the collegiate or professional level and really excelled in certain roles. So I think that's going to help close out games. So I guess I'm curious to see how many of those guys actually work their way into the rotation, right? Uh, I think I think Ed Davis will definitely be in the rotation, to be clear. But a guy like a Kenneth Fareed, uh, I'm, I'm, he provides a lot of rebounding, but I'm not so sure about his his defense. Um, and, you know, I think Daryl Arthur, if El Healthy, is probably like a better backup power forward option. But you've also got Quincy Acey, a guy who um, is, I think, slightly undervalued by like the uh, average N- NBA fan, but a guy who's, who's really effective uh, on the glass. And uh, like Shabazz Napier, you have we've talked about D'Angelo Russell. We've talked about Spencer Dinwiddie. Um, I don't know if Shabazz – Shabazz has some experience in Portland like playing next to uh, other primary ball handlers, but um, – like I, I wonder, like how effective he will be since his, uh, since he's so like small and diminutive. I wonder how effective like a, a Dinwiddie Shabazz like backcourt will be defensively, you know. And so I'm just uh, when I look at this team, my I'm just curious to see how all the pieces fit together. That that's my question. Well, I know that uh, for me, I, I look at the same team, and you look at what was on the roster last year. I mean, who was the that's fair front court front court rotation after Jared Allen? It was Timofey Mozgov, who I mean, he might he might as well have been wearing cement bricks on his feet, and Julio Lokifer, who was so unplayable that when he first got to Brooklyn, he couldn't get on the court for the first week or so because he was both out of shape and just could not learn the system. And then when he got on the court, he tanked the net rating so much that by February, there he was just riding the bench. Like there, the, the Julio Okafor experiment was done. Uh, you had Dante Cunningham, who's really more of a like three four guy playing. Like he was the backup center last year. So I think when you throw Ed Davis in the mix, obviously you know he's for sure going to be a good addition. But you throw Kenneth Reed, who is a wild card. He plays with a lot of injury. He can run in transition. I mean, are, are they going to ask him to shoot threes? No, I, I, hope, I hope not. not yeah. But uh, he's going to be someone that is going to pull down a ton of rebounds and run in transition. Brooklyn really struggled in transition scoring last year. So I think he's going to be someone that helps in that. You look at Shabazz Napier, who is one of the better spot-up shooters off the bench in the league. Uh, that's something that fits Brooklyn's offense hand in glove. He's someone that, like you mentioned, he's used to playing with primary ball handlers and guards. So he's not someone that necessarily has to be the point guard. He can play off ball. He knows how to move without the ball in his hands to get around screens and get into favorable scoring situations. And while Portland kind of wet the bed in the playoffs last year, he really was a a crucial role player. I think it was either Kenny Atkinson or another NBA head coach that said when we looked at Portland's X-Factor, we looked at Shabazz Napier. He was one of the X-Factors for the Trailblazers. 
And I, I think that that is kind of true. I think, uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, Kenny Atkinson likes to play the hot hand. He likes to play the guys that have the best matchup. If Shabazz comes in and hits three threes and doesn't turn the ball over and is doing an okay job on defense, he's going to find his way into the rotation pretty quick. If Kenneth Freed comes in and is rebounding and running in transition and not terrible on defense, I mean, he's kind of by default going to be in the rotation. So there's definitely each position got a little bit of an upgrade from last year. I can I can see that. Uh, there The Nets definitely were um, shallow in some places last season. Uh, what's the what's the under the radar thing that uh, somebody who doesn't watch the Nets every night would miss if they're not watching the Nets every night? I think that they would honestly miss just how talented of a passer D'Angelo Russell is. I know it's kind of like, oh, you're just saying that. But you watch the passes that he makes. I mean, I remember towards the end of the year when he was really hitting his stride. I mean, he was healthy. He was familiar with the system, and the players were comfortable with him. He was running pick and roll with Jared Allen, and he had this way of kind of doing like a little shot fake. And then he would, while looking at the air, and it looked like it was going to be a floater, would throw a bounce pass to Jared Allen. And I mean, it was, it's just the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life. And I mean, it just sets Jared up for a perfect dunk. You watch him uh, deal with cutting players and someone gets a screen on the wing and then goes around the screen and cuts to the rim. And he's able to, with his offhand, kind of work the ball around his defender and into the right spot in the right area of the floor for a bounce pass that ends in a layup at the rim. I mean, there is just so much that he does well as a passer. And it's so overshadowed by the crazy passes that he makes. I mean, you take a look at the pass that I just mentioned. If he doesn't time that pass perfectly, it's a easy pickoff for the defense. So I mean, he really he's a really gifted passer, but... Uh, yeah, I don't think he's going to get that credit until he cuts down on the turnovers. No, I think that's fair. This is the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. We do have to talk a little bit about the Pistons. Uh, from your perspective, what what have you thought of the last six months in Detroit? So that's the the Blake Griffin trade. That's firing Stan Van Gundy and hiring Dwayne Casey. That's uh, restructuring the front office under Ed Stefanski, who has ties to the Nets when they were in New Jersey, uh, etc. Like, what, what have you thought of the of the Pistons lately? I've, I've liked what the Pistons have done. I have to say, before I get too much into this, one of my most prized sports possessions is uh, a friend of mine in college. Had, his dad lived in Detroit, and he had a uh, snapback from like the bad boy Piston era. And he wasn't a big basketball fan. He didn't really like the hat. And he came into my dorm room one day. He's like, oh, yeah, I have this hat. Would you like it? Like, oh, my God, from the bad boy Piston era? Like, sign me, give me that hat. It's like my favorite hat. So uh, I, 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 I like watching the Pistons. But as far as what's gone on in the past six months, I was a fan of the Blake Griffin trade. I think that he is someone that he, he is a star in this league. I mean, is he kind of a, a waning star? Maybe. But he offers something that wasn't in Detroit before. I kind of like him next to Andre, Andre Drummond because Blake Griffin is someone that uh, – he is more skilled than people give him credit for. I think everyone remembers him being like a rookie clipper and just dunking over everyone. But he kind of has a little bit of a three-point shot. He's not a too horrible of a passer. There's more going on there than just dunks. 
And I think he works well next to Drummond because people will uh, just by default have to pay attention to him. So that kind of allows Drummond to work in the lane more. Uh, I really love uh, getting rid of Stan Van Gundy. I think he was kind of a little bit of a relic in the league. And I don't think that you should be head coach and GM of a team or head coach and president of basketball operations. I mean, look at what's going on in Minnesota with Tibbs. I mean, he is just totally ruining that team by trying to sign all of his old Bulls players. So I think it was great that the uh, Pistons were able to kind of separate those roles again. I was a huge fan of Dwayne Casey in Toronto. I still can't believe that the Raptors fired him. But uh, I I think he's going to do well. And I'm really hoping that he can unlock the potential of Stanley Johnson, finally. I've been a big Stanley Johnson fan since he was at Arizona. So I'm really hoping that he has a good year under Dwayne Casey. Oh, man, you you and me both. I think, honestly, Stanley Johnson is one of the biggest swing pieces uh, for this team. There's really It really just boils down to how many games Reggie Jackson and Blake Griffin play and uh, whether or not they can get a positive offensive uh, production out of Stanley Johnson on a consistent basis. Um, does that mean he has to shoot like 38% from three? No, it, it, but it does mean that he has to be a consistent option and defenses have to account for him on a night-to-night basis. Um, whether or not that happens, we'll see. But I, I definitely think you you hit the nail on the head with uh, with what Pistons fans are, are uh, looking forward to and concerned about uh, going into this year. Uh, Nick, I want to thank you so much for your time. Um, where what's the best place for people to come to you and talk about the nets or uh you know ask for that uh detroit bad boy snapback which sounds awesome <laughs> uh people you can follow me on twitter at uh, nick underscore lt i know I, i'm i'm attached to my phone and i'm i'm addicted to twitter so you can you can always find me on there all right and i am lazarus jackson uh you can find me on twitter at last chance that's at l-a-z-c-h-a-n-c-e Uh, This has been the Detroit Bad Boys podcast, and we will talk to you guys next week.